Good morning, Kevin College. Several times uh, a year, we have the opportunity to host scholars from outside the college who are doing work uh, that's of interest to our community. Uh, this morning, it's my privilege to introduce one such scholar. Uh, not a pastor, but a scholar. Could be a pastor, but he's not. Uh, as you might have noticed, we live in an age dominated by political conflict and disagreement, perhaps even here on our campus. Uh, for the last 30 or 40 years at least, disagreements about the proper place of Christian faith in American government has stood somewhere near the very center of our national conflicts over politics. I think every generation needs to think through these challenges, and yours is really no different. Um, as I often tell my own students, you can't claim to know any subject fully until you've understood its development over time. That is, until you know something of its history. Joining us for the next two days is someone uniquely equipped to help us do this. Dr. Daniel K. Williams is among the very finest young historians of religion and American politics working today. He's developed a reputation as a careful scholar with an incisive grasp of the complicated story of contemporary politics, especially the role played by Christian conservatives within that. He's also a Christian believer himself, which while giving him empathy for faith, doesn't keep him from critical assessments of our many political blind spots and blunders. He's a reliable guide for us, and it's an honor to have him on campus. In addition to speaking in chapel this morning and tomorrow morning, and tomorrow morning, we also have chapel. Did I mention the Tuesday chapel <laughs> that we'll be having here? just want to make sure I didn't miss that. In addition to these chapels, he will deliver a lecture this afternoon at 4 p.m. in Mills 180 entitled The Forgotten Origins of the Pro-Life Movement, The Liberal Campaign Against Abortion Before Roe v. Wade. Uh, Williams is Associate Professor of History at uh, the University of West Georgia. He holds a PhD, the PhD in History from Brown University. He's the author of God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, and Defenders of the Unborn, The Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade, both pub published by Oxford University Press. He lives in Carrollton, Georgia with his wife, Nadia, and their two sons. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Daniel K. Williams. Well, good morning. It's uh, certainly an honor to be there, to be here, and I appreciate that kind introduction. Uh, I was joking uh, after I heard the first introduction that I'll tell my wife when I get home that um, Covenant College bestowed ordination on me. Uh, so thank you. Um, Seriously, what I want to talk about today is the question of our political commitments as Christians. And I've entitled this talk, Does God Have a Political Party? Civil Religion and Party Politics in American History. Uh, some of you, I think, will be interested in this because you're interested in the study of the past, uh, but more of you, I hope, will be interested in it because you, like me and, and all of your professors, I think, are interested in trying to figure out how to serve our Lord in the American 
context in which we happen to live. So I would like to begin this morning by reading a few verses from chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. As many of you probably remember in that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a dream in which he saw a massive statue of a man. The head of the statue was of gold, the torso was of silver, the legs were of iron, and the feet were of iron and clay. And I want to begin our reading in verse 34 of this chapter, when Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar in describing the king's dream, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The next few verses describe the meaning of the vision. The statue, Daniel said, represented earthly kingdoms, with the head being the Babylonian king himself. But at some future date, Daniel said, those kingdoms would be destroyed by a kingdom that God set up, the kingdom that was represented by the stone that would fill the earth. Daniel 2.44 says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. We're citizens of a different kingdom, and yet we live in the midst of the kingdoms of men. And so the question that we face as Christians is how to navigate the tension between that heavenly kingdom of which we're a part and the earthly kingdoms that seem so visible to us today. And perhaps for us as Americans, nowhere is that tension more evident than in the area of America's political parties, both of which claim to be following Christian principles, at least at times. Representatives of both parties speak in churches and quote the Bible. And as I'll show this morning, that's no accident because both parties can claim origins in a certain brand of Christianity. But at the same time, I think we'll see that they're tinged with Christian heresy. And so over the next few minutes this morning, I want to briefly trace the history of each of the parties that are the major parties in the U.S. today, the Republican and Democratic parties, and to look at them from a biblical perspective, and then to ask it, how should we as Christians relate to those parties today? So we'll start with the Republican Party. The Republican Party has always been a party of Protestantism. It was founded by Northern Evangelicals and Unitarians in the 1850s, just before the Civil War. It was founded by people who wanted to stop the spread of slavery. And it was also infused in its early years with a strong dose of anti-Catholic nativism. In 1884, for instance, one Republican minister in New York famously charged that the Democrats were the party of, quote, rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Republicans, of course, were the opposite. They had fought against slavery, against the rebels in the Civil War. They were the, the party of uh, teetotalers, uh, the party of Protestants. And that particular attack backfired that year. It probably helped to mobilize Irish Catholic votes for Democratic candidate Grover Cleveland, who won in a very narrow uh, election. But for decades, the Republican Party continued to be a home for many Northern temperance advocates, as well as the majority of Northern Protestants. It was a strongly moralistic party. 
It had been founded, of course, on the principle of a, a moral stand against slavery. And many of its early members were deeply influenced by the Second Great Awakening revivals and social reform movements that they prompted. And so if we look at the late 19th century Republican presidents, we find Rutherford B. Hayes, whose wife was a teetotaling Methodist who earned the sobriquet Lemonade Lucy because of her refusal to serve alcohol in the White House. We have, following Hayes, James Garfield, a former lay revivalist minister in the Disciples of Christ, which in the 19th century was still a thoroughly evangelical denomination. And then we have Benjamin Harrison, who was a Presbyterian elder who taught Sunday school. And then after Harrison, we have William McKinley, who was such a devout Methodist that he hosted hymn singings in the White House every Sunday evening. Throughout much of the 20th century, the Republican Party remained heavily Protestant. But by the 1920s, it had become less evangelical and more mainline, which was a shift that reflected the parallel theological evolution of Protestant denominational traditions, such as Methodism, that had given rise to the Republican Party and that had always enjoyed a close relationship with the GOP. While evangelicals had emphasized the importance of a personal conversion to Christ, mainline Protestants tended to de-emphasize individual salvation and focus more on civil religion and societal reform. And it's striking that from 1920 through 2008, this 88-year period, every Republican presidential nominee was affiliated with a mainline Protestant denomination, usually Episcopalian or Methodist, but with a handful of Quakers, Presbyterians, not PCA, uh, but PCUSA or its equivalent, Congregationalists, Northern Baptists, Disciples of Christ also thrown into the mix. Middle-class mainline Protestants were so closely associated with the GOP that the Episcopal Church, said Theodore Roosevelt, was merely the Republican Party at prayer, and perhaps appropriately, Roosevelt himself attended an Episcopal Church uh, when he wasn't attending a church affiliated with his own Dutch Reformed denomination. The Republican Party of the mid-20th century adopted positions that reflected the priorities of these northern mainline Protestants. In the 1940s, it was more progressive than many of the Democrats on issues of race and women's rights, but also far more supportive of business interests and public expressions of civil religion. For years, the GOP also championed moral regulation, at least in the areas that reflected middle-class white Protestant values. So in the early 20th century, it had given prohibition stronger support than the Democratic Party did. And in the late 20th century, the GOP led the way in implementing stricter anti-drug laws. In the early years of the Cold War, that is the 1950s, Republican politicians with the strong support of Billy Graham were at the forefront of a national civil religious revival to unite the nation against atheistic communism. Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican who joined a mainline Presbyterian church within weeks of becoming president, became the only president to personally lead a prayer at his own inauguration ceremony and he signed into law legislation that added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance and made in God we trust the national motto. President Richard Nixon, though hardly known for his personal piety, nevertheless projected a front of it uh, by holding White House worship services and recruiting Billy Graham to mobilize the conservative Protestant vote for the GOP. And in the 1960s and 1970s, Republican leaders in Congress led the unsuccessful fight to rescind the Supreme Court's rulings against school prayer and restore classroom prayer in public schools through a constitutional amendment. So all of these were things that the mainline Protestant-dominated Republican Party did in the 20th century. 
In holding to this morality, we might note that this tended to be a form of religious value that met the convenience standards of the upper middle class. The Republicans of the mid-20th century were not particularly bothered by inequities in wealth distribution, for instance, and the religion that they promoted tended to be generically Judeo-Christian, that is, affirming the place of God in national life without very many specific references to Jesus, let alone the specifics of the gospel. And in the mid-20th century, this generic religious moralism could unite a broad spectrum of Protestants, ranging from the evangelical Methodists to the High Church Episcopalians and almost everyone in between. But in the 1970s and 1980s, a new group of Protestants infused the GOP, and these were millions of conservative evangelicals who were alarmed about secular trends in the nation and who were attracted to the Republican Party's historic support for civil religion and moral regulation. And they infused this with a new religious fervor that was perhaps a throwback to the early days of the Second Great Awakening influenced Republican Party of the 19th century. They made opposition to abortion rights, which of course will be the story that I tell uh, at this, the lecture this afternoon, along with opposition to gay rights, a central priority. As I'll point out this afternoon, in the late 1960s, the Republicans were not a party that was opposed to abortion, but the evangelicals helped to turn it into one that was. And the Christian right first attracted the notice of the national media around 1980, when millions of conservative evangelicals, led by television evangelists such as Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, mobilized voters for Ronald Reagan and played a key role in shaping the Republican Party platform. And by 2008, white evangelicals would comprise 40% of GOP voters. They are the largest controlling interest in the Republican Party today. I want to say a few words about the Christian right, although I'll try to be very brief because I want to talk about the Democratic Party before we close. But let me say that the, the Christian right was shaped by people who were born in the 1930s, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, James Dobson, others of their generation, and who were alarmed by what they saw when they were in their, their late 30s, raising children of their own and seeing the effects of the sexual revolution and a sea change in the nation's civil religious values. And they wanted to restore a lost America, that is, the America of their youth, the America of Dwight D. Eisenhower, an America that was united around principles of a strong opposition to godless communism, to a sexual ethic that bolstered the nuclear heterosexual family, and to a public acknowledgement of God in national life. And on the surface, at least, one could find biblical support for some of those things. After all, there are a lot of warnings about sexual immorality in the Bible. But I think when taken as a whole, the Christian right represented a confusion about the nature of God's covenants, oftentimes applying biblical verses that had been spoken to ancient Israel and, and applying those to the American nation, viewing the American nation as God's chosen nation. Its selection of moral issues was always very selective. That is, while saying a great deal about homosexuality in the 1980s, the Christian right said relatively little about divorce, and one could look at other principles as well. The Christian right was always dominated almost entirely by whites. While one could find a few examples of African Americans who gave some support to the Christian right, 
by and large, the priorities that the Christian right emphasized tended to say a great deal about a few personal moral issues and relatively little about structural discrimination, inequities of wealth distribution, racism, the sort of things that energized liberal Protestants. And so now I want to look at what the liberal Protestants were doing during this time. I want to turn our focus to the Democratic Party. Like the Republican Party, the Democratic Party can also trace its roots to Christian moral concerns. And if the Republican presidential nominee of 1896 was the devout evangelical Methodist hymn singing William McKinley that we mentioned before, the Democratic Party's candidate for president that year was an equally fervent evangelical. His name was William Jennings Bryan. The teetotaling Bryan finished his political career as an advocate of prohibition and most famously an opponent of evolution. But he was far from a political conservative or fundamentalist reactionary. Known as the great commoner, he spent a lifetime campaigning against the business classes that he believed controlled the Republican Party. Bryan's brand of evangelical democratic populism reflected the values of numerous evangelicals of the early 20th century, especially in the South and rural Midwest. Until the 1950s, a majority of the nation's Baptists and other evangelicals consistently voted Democratic in presidential elections and lauded the party's championship of the working class. In fact, the Democratic Party continued to retain the support of a number of white evangelicals, particularly Baptists in the South, until at least the 1980s. But I would argue that the dominant religious influence in the Democratic Party for most of the 20th century was not necessarily those Southern Baptists, but rather liberal Protestants who believed in the social gospel, and to a lesser extent Catholics who adhered to their church's progressive teaching on social issues. President Franklin Roosevelt, for instance, was an example of this. He was a, a mainline Episcopalian who regularly invoked religious principles in defending the New Deal, and he received strong support for his social policies from some of the leading liberal Protestant ministers and theologians of his day who believed that the government had a Christian mandate to care for the less fortunate. He also received the votes of about 80% of the nation's Catholics, many of whom saw close parallels between the New Deal and Catholic social teaching on the living wage, the rights of workers, and the obligation of the state to care for the less fortunate. And we could continue. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but if you look at Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, for example, you can find those same mainline Protestant and, and Catholic uh, theologians and clergy supporting his efforts to try to improve the inner cities and alleviate the problems of America's poor. And one could find the same thing in the Democratic Party's human rights program uh, that influenced its foreign policy in the 20th century, from Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations to Franklin Roosevelt's United Nations to Jimmy Carter's human rights-based foreign policy, one can find the strong influence of the principles of liberal Protestantism. But furthermore, the Democratic Party was shaped by a rights-based liberalism that was a product of the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement was so closely tied to religion, it was led by African-American ministers and supported by many liberal Protestant ministers. It was so closely tied with religion that historian David L. Chappelle has called the civil rights movement a religious revival. And I think that's apt. Uh, in many ways, it was. And having participated in the civil rights movement, many of the liberal Protestant ministers of the time began devoting themselves to other rights-based causes, first women's rights and then uh, later 
what they would call reproductive rights and, and gay rights and some things that, of course, conservative evangelicals would, would find antithetical to Christianity, but that liberal Protestants believed were part of their social creed. And so today, the overwhelming majority of African-American Christians support the Democratic Party, with some polls showing that African-Americans who regularly attend church are more likely to vote Democratic than those who do not. In other words, the black church tends to infuse people with, with values and a certain ethic that would lead them to become even more strongly committed to Democratic Party liberalism. And although many African-American Christians are moderately conservative on issues of abortion and same-sex marriage, their concerns about civil rights, assistance to the poor, and social and economic justice make them strong allies of the Democratic Party. And one could say something similar uh, about Hispanic Catholics to a lesser degree, perhaps. There are also about 25% of white evangelicals who regularly vote Democratic. Some of their best-known representatives are people like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider, who talk about support for the poor, concern for the poor, compelling them to vote against the Republicans. And although many conservative evangelicals tend to think of the Democratic Party as a party of secularism, it's more accurate, I think, to say that it is a secular, that today the Democratic Party holds to a secularized view that's shaped by liberal Protestants. And in fact, many of the party's best known representatives in recent years, including Hillary Clinton, had a childhood upbringing in the Methodist Church or the equivalent. You can think of George McGovern and Walter Mondale, the late 20th century, two Democratic presidential nominees who were sons of Midwestern Methodist ministers. Like most liberal Protestants, Democratic politicians are often strong advocates of religious pluralism, and so that has led many of them to downplay the specifically Christian commitment uh, that shaped their party. But nevertheless, they still, one will find, uh, Democrats still are fond of quoting certain verses from the Sermon on the Mount, a number of verses from Amos, social justice proclamations of other prophets of the Old Testament in support of their cause. And yet, if you look carefully, there's one thing that's clearly absent from most Democratic Party rhetoric, and that is any biblical understanding of sin. Like liberal Protestants, the Democratic Party has been shaped with an op by an optimistic view of human improvement and the capacity of institutions and education and social movements to transform the human spirit. If you listen to Democratic Party speeches, you will rarely find any hint of a need for divine rescue. Instead, what one will find will be extensive discussions of an ethical commitment. But it's much easier for most Democrats to talk about Luke's Sermon on the Plain or the prophecies of Amos than Isaiah chapter 53 or Paul's epistle to the Romans. And so I would warn evangelicals who are tempted by the Democratic Party, just as I'd warn evangelicals who are tempted by the Republican Party, to think carefully about whether your scriptural commitments are going to be compromised by your adherence to a corrupted gospel, by a partial gospel, something that emphasizes human uplift perhaps in social justice, but that misses the heart of the Christian message. If we look at the two parties, we find reason for dismay. We find both parties distorting the Christian message. 
Republican administration's nuclear arms buildup in the late 20th century, which many Catholic and Protestant clergy condemned as immoral, was one administration's distorted Christian version of opposition to atheistic communism. And similarly, if we look at the Democratic Party, its current championship of abortion rights and other principles that I think Christians rightly call evil, developed because of a concern for individual rights that was grounded in the Christian-based civil rights movement and a, a religious concern for human dignity. But in their distorted forms, we can find most of the seven deadly sins, especially greed, lust, gluttony, and pride, well represented in the platforms of both of our major political parties, often, I would say, masquerading as Christian values. And so for some Christians, the choice at the voting booth appears to be either a party of corporate greed and hawkish foreign policy, wrapped in a veneer of evangelical civil religious language, or an endorsement of secularism, cultural liberalism, and abortion rights disguised as a mandate for justice and concerns for the poor. Both conservative evangelicals and liberal Protestants have made the mistake of believing that they could spread Christian values and regenerate the nation through politics. We who serve a savior who said that his kingdom is not of this world should probably not expect an earthly political party to give us the values of the kingdom. In fact, Christians have a word for such misplaced trust, idolatry. Now the failure of America's two parties to faithfully adhere to Christian principles should not surprise anyone who knows that we live in a sinful world. But the fact that both parties have been shaped by Christian traditions should also be encouraging to discerning Christians who have the wisdom to look past political rhetoric and determine which parts of each party's platform to accept and which parts to reject. So my encouragement for you this morning is to discern the difference between the kingdom of God and the political parties of the United States. You should be a faithful American citizen. But if you find yourself identifying the cause of Christ too closely with a single political party, you may want to ask yourself whether your eyes are still firmly on Jesus and the gospel or whether you are settling for a distortion of kingdom values. Jesus has called us to be citizens of his kingdom. And part of that task does involve seeking the welfare of the city where we sojourn, and praying for our rulers. But if we confuse God's kingdom with an American political party. We're settling for far too little. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I thank you that you have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, and have made us citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your son, Jesus. And I pray uh, for myself and for all of the students and faculty here that we will be faithful in our commitments, above all, to the cause of your kingdom. And we do pray, your kingdom come. I pray that we would be discerning voters, that we would be discerning citizens, that you would work through the people who are elected, even if they are distorting the gospel. But I pray that we will not become enamored of the promises of this world, and that above all, we will not compromise your gospel in what we, we do or say. I pray that you'll be with us through the rest of this day. I, I pray for wisdom as I continue to speak. And I pray that you would be glorified by your work in us. It's through Jesus that I pray.